Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Great. Rich is doing a good job, isn't he? Yeah, well done, Rich. There you go. Can I give you that as well? Thank you. Well, uh, if we've not met, my name is Matt Hatch. Uh, about 10 years ago, me and my wife, Philippa, planted Mosaic. And uh, since then, uh, by the grace of God, it's grown. We're now, as Rich said, in three gatherings across the city. And uh, every Sunday as we gather, we tend to open our Bibles. And to be honest, we try over the course of a year to do sort of give you a bit of a mixed uh, or balanced diet from the Bible. So we tend to uh, have a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of wisdom literature, you know, Psalms, Proverbs. And also we explore some themes together. And so far this year, we started with a theme of encountering God. And we talked about encountering God in our discipleship triplets, accountability type groups they are, uh, in our mission groups, uh, on Sundays, in our everyday life, and also in our finances. And then this summer, we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Philippians in a, a series called Finding Joy in Life. And then a little bit later on in the summer, right in sort of July, August time, we're going to spend uh, time in a series called Heroes of the Faith, where we're going to look at some great examples uh, of Christians through the centuries and their favorite Bible verses. And then in autumn, when some of you come back after the summer break, we're going to be spending from September through to Christmas looking at the Sermon on the Mount and spending our time verse by verse through Matthew 5 to 7. So we've got some great series coming up. But for the next eight weeks, we're in the book of Nehemiah. And not only is that great in this special offering Sunday that we're in Nehemiah because it gets us into the Old Testament, but as I planned the preaching series, we do that sort of quite a few months in advance. I really sensed that Nehemiah was going to be a turning point for us. I felt that um, whatever this eight weeks is going to bring, I sense that God wants to use this book to shape us and mold us, and I'm hoping for a bit of a watershed moment for us across the church as God speaks and leads us into something new. And it's interesting, uh, as I planned today's uh, message, I realized that it was probably nine years ago in uh, as Mosaic first got started when we were just 50 people meeting in... Uh, can I have the next slide? Is it having a bit of trouble? Oh, okay. Oh. Um, so um, if we uh, uh, it cast my back nine years, there it is. And we're in this old Anglican church in the city center. Um, and we're at that point where we had sort of grown. We'd gone from about 25 people. We'd launched the church, gone to 50. And we felt like we're at a very key time in the life of the church. Everything very felt very shaky, very vulnerable. We didn't really know what we were doing at all. And we felt as we studied Nehemiah together, it just gave us what we needed and God did what he needed to do to help us on to the sort of the next season in the life of the church. And I'm trusting that God's going to do that over the next eight weeks. My job tonight is to do what um, happens in, if you've ever sort of watched a DVD, box sets or you've watched like a series of episodes usually at the start of the episode you get a summary don't you of the story so far so it sort of catches you up with the story and then you watch the episode and so tonight is the sort of the catching up 
the story behind the story, and then the next seven weeks we're going to sort of plunge into the different chapters of Nehemiah. So I've got this chart here to show you. Hopefully you find it helpful, not too confusing, but uh, let me give this a go. The story starts about 4,000 years ago when God chooses a man called Abraham to lavish his love and his grace on. Abraham marries He has some kids. His kids have some more kids that grows into a family, one of whom is Jacob, who has 12 children of his own, which over time, as they marry and have kids, grows into a huge nation of about one million people. These one million people um, are brought by Joseph initially, Jacob's son, to uh, Egypt. But it's sadly in Egypt that this huge family is enslaved by Pharaoh, building his pyramids, until God raises up a new leader. His name is Moses, to bring them out of Egypt in a great exodus into a new land. Sadly, though, Israel, as they exited slavery into this new land, they were a fickle bunch. They didn't trust God's goodness and God's power. And so God made them wander around in the desert, unable to enter this promised land. But after that generation had died out, God used someone called Joshua to bring them into the promised land, the promised land of Canaan, which was roughly where Israel is today in the Middle East. And these people in Canaan battled to establish the nation. They were led by different judges initially, till eventually they wanted a king to rule them like the nations around them had. And so they chose what looked to be the most impressive person for the job. His name was Saul. He was a a very tall man, a very strong man, but sadly he was weak in the heart. And he too didn't ultimately trust God uh, in his goodness and in his power. And so God replaces him with a guy called David. He was a guy who plays the harp and sung sweetly. Not your obvious first choice, but actually he turns out to be like the Bear grills of shepherd boys. And he proves to be a warrior king. And he defeats all the enemies that Israel faces. And he hands an established peaceful kingdom to his son, Solomon. Solomon becomes king. And Solomon builds a huge temple so that the people of God could worship God. But sadly, things again go downhill very quickly when Solomon hands the kingdom over to his kids. The kingdom splits into two, to the northern and to the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom, made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, called Israel, has a succession of wicked kings that refuse to trust the love and the power of God, which results in their eventual judgment and invasion by the ruling world power at the time, which was the Assyrians in 721 BC. But 136 years after that northern kingdom is conquered and the people are deported and exiled, the southern kingdom, which is made up of the two remaining tribes called Judah, also fail to follow God. And they fall not to the Assyrians, but now to the Babylonians, who are the reigning ruling empire in the world at that time. So to catch you up with the story now, Persia shows up and decides that they're going to run the world. So the Persians conquer the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians. And so in this beautifully illustrated diagram I have for you, at the end of two chronicles in the Bible, the Holy Spirit influences Cyrus, who is the king of Persia. He's the most powerful man in the world. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him in order for him to release some of the Jews to go back, or at least a portion of them, 
back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under a leader called Zerubbabel, the lovable. And that's where we get the book of Ezra. And it's Ezra's job to call the people back to God by reintroducing the law. Now, here's something interesting. The book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were happening simultaneously at the same time. So, in fact, some of the ancient manuscripts, Ezra and Nehemiah, are just one book instead of two. And so the book of Nehemiah describes the rebuilding and the repopulation of Jerusalem through the lens of a king's wine taster called Nehemiah, who's currently in the Persian winter capital called Susa. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah describes the moment he hears that his homeland, Judah, has been left burnt out and empty and humiliated. And this is what we find, Nehemiah 1, verses 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, it's really hard to imagine what's going on here, but Nehemiah represented a people who, right from Abraham's time, had been specifically chosen by God. He chose this people to pour out not just himself, but his blessing, his promises. Um, he, he gave this uh, huge blessing of land, and the idea was that he would so bless his people as they lived under his law that somehow it would overflow to the nations of the world. Yet right now, they couldn't be further away from this truth. They're currently away from their homeland after successive invasions by the world's leading powers that have just left the whole nation devastated and empty. And my guess is for the average Israelite that wasn't actually in the homeland but had been sent abroad and was trying to eke out a living in a foreign land, most of them would have been full of doubts and questions. Their prayers would be desperate. God, are you there? God, what are you doing? What's happened to these promises and commitments you made to us as a people? Where are you? And Nehemiah feels those things deeply. And what I love about this story is this is where I feel our story and his stories intersect. You see, I find myself praying some very similar prayers for Leeds and for the UK. You see, my hope and my expectation is that God would move in our day. I thoroughly believe that a man called Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross, but in order to prove that everything he did and said was true and from God, he rose three days later. And by rising from the grave, he defeated man's greatest enemies, which is namely the sin and selfishness that has a grip on our lives and death that, uh, that destroys us, spiritually speaking, as well as physically. And because of his resurrection, it means that there is new life available, a restored relationship with God, but there's also hope for this world. And I believe in that. I, you know, that I've put all my eggs in that basket, that Jesus really did rise again. And I believe that he wonderfully uses us, the church, to achieve his purposes on earth. 
And so, like you, I've prayed over maps of this city. I've walked miles and miles just across the city, through neighborhoods, praying for God to come, praying for God to do something, praying for uh, God to make disciples of Jesus who will then go and make disciples of Jesus, for the church to grow in depth as well as in numbers and influence, for God to start a movement here in this little church called Mosaic that really does touch the nations of the earth. I, I believe in that wholeheartedly, but you know what? I also see the challenge. I see the church struggling in the UK. I see Christianity disappearing. You know, in the UK during the last 10 years, population has grown by something like 2 million people. So there's been a a 3% rise. But during that time, 400 churches have closed. So it's down about 1%, which doesn't actually seem that big in the last 10 years. But probably more importantly, there are now 400,000 fewer church members than 10 years ago. These are people committed sold into the local church. And over that same period of time, eight, there are 800,000 fewer attendees, down 18%. So you can see from just those little stats, the average size of church is shrinking in the UK. Spiritual life in this nation really is in the balance. And what's interesting is you do hear different stats across the UK. Even these ones are totally skewed by what's happening in London, in the capital. So currently in in London, church attendance is roughly about 10%. And it's been hugely um, uh, increased by the number of people moving from other Christian countries to this nation and going to church and inviting people to church. The reality is in a place like Yorkshire, it differs from city to city, town to town, but it's roughly about 1% of our population regularly goes to church. The Evangelical Alliance wrote a report on the decline of the 18 to 30s in the church, and they called it the missing generation. People are not just stopping going to church, but rather they've never been there in the first place. It was fascinating at Trinity University. These guys did a great little outreach week just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was told that they put on uh, on one night that was sort of entitled, Is the Bible True or Relevant? And they said hardly anyone came. And the reason they believe no one came is just that is a totally irrelevant question for most people at university. They're not, they don't care what the Bible says. Their questions are much more sort of fundamental when it comes to the existence of God. The church's walls are broken down. Enemies are on every side. And on our watch, we have some choices to make, like Nehemiah makes in verse 4. Look at how he responds. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourn for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now let me tell you why this is a really odd verse. Nehemiah hears from Hanani that Jerusalem's walls are down and that the gates have been burnt out. And for him, it is like like a punch, a physical punch to the stomach. He can hardly stand. And he sits down and for days he weeps about the walls not being there and the gates being burned down. Now let me tell you why that's odd. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He lives in a palace 800 miles away from Jerusalem. What reason would he have to have any empathy towards these people? You see, his role as a cupbearer is to sample wine and food for the king of the planet. 
He's the most powerful person on earth to make sure that it's perfect and to make sure it's not being poisoned. He's in a palace living in luxury, drinking the best wine on earth. So that's not the bottle of red that I buy for £3.50 from Lidl to treat my wife on occasion. Uh, a little bit of a search on the internet because we know what's on the uh, interweb is always true. But this bottle of wine, Chateau Margaux, um, the limited edition 12-litre bottle uh, was sold in Dubai for £122,000. Mr. Boynton actually has two of them at home. <laughs> but, I mean, this guy, Nehemiah, he's drinking this stuff. The best the world has to offer. That is his job. He's eating food. He's in luxury. He's safe. There's no real threat right now to the Persian Empire. He's in this lavish luxury. And he's got no TV to update him. There's no Twitter feed for him to watch pictures of people suffering. Yet the news of the state of his people, most of whom he had never even met turns his world upside down and he weeps before God and begins to fast and ask God to act. And uh, we're going to look at more of that next week. But what's fascinating is he clearly connects with God and God's heart for the world and for his people. But very quickly he starts to dream. He starts to dream. He's able to see beyond the state of his capital city and he gives his life to a simple project. It's got three things. Number one, rebuild the walls. Number two, fill the city. And number three, bring the nations back to God. And it makes me wonder what our response is going to be to our city and our nation. I mean, a great question to ask yourself honestly today is do you care? Like, are you alive to the fact that we live in a hurting world that knows little of the Jesus we know and worship? Like, what's happened to your hearts during this difficult time? Are you shrinking back? Do you feel like God has gone missing? Or do you trust God for more or do you settle for second best? Are you tired? Are you bored? Are you worn out? Are you cynical? Like, what, what's your dream? Like, more than, like, what's your personal dream that, you know, God's got a plan for my life? But what's our dream? Like, what has God put on our hearts together as family? And are we prepared to dream them? Are we prepared to embrace them and hold on to them and pray for them? You know, again and again, Nehemiah faces these huge steps of faith, violent opposition, practical challenges and yet more opposition but through his victories we're going to learn what it is to pray we're going to learn what it is to have faith when everything seems lost we're going to see what it is to have servant-hearted leadership we're going to see what it is to work as a team for everyone to play their part we're going to talk about how in the middle of chaos there is always enough to bless the underprivileged we're going to look at how to deal with fear and intimidation something that is so common and we're also going to look at how we rededicate ourselves to God's work. But today, as I finish, let me return to the thing that I think God wants to speak to us about. It's actually the most stressful part of the whole book of Nehemiah. And here's why it's stressful. There's three big problems going on. 
Number one, Nehemiah's returned to Jerusalem and his enemies are all around. We're going to find out about someone called Sambalat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod. And all of these different people were fuming at Nehemiah. They were angry at him, plotting his downfall. And the way that he was, they were going to bring him down was by invading the city and killing everyone. So you've got all the enemies outside the city. Then you've got the people in the city trying to rebuild its walls. Now, the walls were crucial because obviously walls and gates, they defend the city against any army trying to attack it. In those times, a decent wall was far better than a a decent army. So obviously you could defend a city with just a few people if the walls were good. But we're told earlier in Nehemiah 4 that the walls were so weak that if a fox jumped over them, they would fall down. So people are frantically trying to build. But here's the pressure for Nehemiah. They're saying, we want to rebuild the wall. We want to get it done quick because we know we'll be able to defend ourselves. But they were complaining there was too much rubble and old bits of wall and old bits of stone they didn't know what to do with. And they were worried they wouldn't complete the job. And so all their moaning gets directed at Nehemiah. And then thirdly, you've got all the surrounding villages that are uh, around the city of Jerusalem. And all those villages felt felt incredibly vulnerable because they would be the first ones to die if the city was attacked. And so there was constant rumors of war in these surrounding villages. Everyone was whispering. There was a lot of gossip. Oh, they're attacking now or they're attacking next week. And again, all those people would come to Nehemiah with their issues. So the wall needs rebuilding and the city needs defending. How on earth is Nehemiah going to cope? Well, this is one of the ways he does in Nehemiah 4 verse 16. Says this, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So Nehemiah's solution was to gather the community together and a a work of absolute genius, he placed a sword in one hand and a spade in the other. Now, I have got my sword with me today. And when I say my sword, it's not actually my sword. But I have my spade that clearly has been used a lot. And Nehemiah does this. He says in verse 17, he says, Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held their weapon in another. They were now ready to battle and to build. Sword and spade. Battle and build. And this was Nehemiah's solution. Battle and build. And I feel like this is a word for us as a church. See, the battle is all about advancing the kingdom. It's about being on the front foot. It's about taking the fight to the enemy. Holding a sword is about us taking ground. It's about evangelism. It's about mission. It's about people coming to Christ and knowing that he can be their life. You know, when we battle, it's about church planting. It's about growth. It's about moving forward. Whereas building is all about securing up. It's about making sure everything is safe. It's about building the church. It's about community. It's about investment. It's about consolidation. It's about making sure everyone is okay. 
Everyone's in the family and that we're training and getting ready for whatever God has for us. And what I love about this picture is that I don't know if you can imagine me on the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, it's pretty hard to do anything, to be honest. Just holding these things is hard enough. And I like that because everything, even though practically they really worked hard, they had to depend on God ultimately to come through. And so do we. And so for us as a church, for us at HH, like what is God wanting to say to us through this brilliant picture of sword and spade? Well, I think I'd want to say these things. Um, High Park Henley's been going three years now. And I would say that the sword has been our strong arm. Uh, I feel like we're advancing the gospel really well. I feel like, like Nehemiah, you guys truly care for people that don't know Jesus. And what I sense is that this arm being strong simply needs to hang in there and persevere. Because many of our friends that we're reaching, many of our friends that we're talking to about Jesus still yet haven't come to know him. And for many of us, it's just hanging there for the long haul. You know, some wonderful bits, as David describes his mighty warriors going to war holding their sword, that one fought so hard that his hand froze to the handle of his sword. And there's that sense of perseverance and grit that we need in this gathering if we are going to see people saved. So please, guys, keep holding the sword, keep wielding the sword, keep inviting people to intro, keep praying for your friends to get saved, keep inviting people on a Sunday and to your mission groups, keep on the front line. But you know what, as well, what's interesting at HH, that your sword hand is actually, so your spade hand is actually pretty strong as well. You know, I meet Many, many people that are part of this gathering that say that they found community and friendship like they've never, ever experienced in life, in church before, until they come to this place. You guys, when I look around at the end of a service, I feel there's very few people stood on their own. Very few people, very few people leave without people talking to them and welcoming them. And I feel like people do a great job hosting meals, welcome people to their mission groups and just being really friendly. And so when I look at HH, I do see like two strong arms, sword and spade together. But I guess there is a challenge on your spade hand, on the building side of things. It still feels like at HH that we've got your, there's, it's almost like you're in and you're fully in, or you're on the, sort of the outskirts. There's very little middle ground. And you're either right in there, which many of you are doing, which I just think is great, or you tend to just come on a Sunday and don't ever push things more than that. And I guess if that's you, if you're someone that's still checking us out, still new, still trying to make up your mind, whether or not you're going to get involved, then we would encourage you wholeheartedly. This is a great picture of Mosaic at work right now. And we need you to hold the spade and hold the sword with us. God has we pray that has brought you here to join with us and be part of what we're doing together. And so if you're still on the edge, we welcome you in with open arms and say, come and join our family and come and battle and build with us. I'll put this down now. I'm just about to talk about the special offering. It's slightly threatening, isn't it? <laughs>
So, as Rich said, um, we have an opportunity today to invest in battling and building in Mosaic Church. Um, it is fascinating looking back over the years to as because we tend to do a special offering every two years over the years to look back at how God has blessed us. As Rich said, two years ago, we invested in East Leeds, um, uh, a great couple uh, called Keith and Anna uh, bought this farm. This is in the middle of Seacroft, a very, very run-down estate. And the farm was completely sort of uh, derelict. And over about 18 months, they did it up. And it's now a retreat center, like herb, offering urban retreat. But it's also sort of the base of mission in their community. A lot of people in the community are in and out of this building. And they have really held sword and spade until their arms started to shake in that place. And it was actually this afternoon they baptized their first two people. And I tell you, it thrills us to see that because they've worked so, so hard in that place and prayed for a move of God. And it feels like something is happening there. Three and a bit years ago, we invested our special offering into Steve and Leanne Vaughan, who are church planting in Dublin. They're now gathering about 40 to 50 people, sort of right in the heart of the, the city centre, and they've seen a number of people saved, baptised, and they're really growing a family unit, which hopefully will continue to grow over the years. Four years ago, we invested in our West Leeds church plant, now called The Oak. Uh, they're a community of around 70 people who have been uh, trying to find a Sunday morning venue. So they meet in Fastly in West Leeds, and there's no venues, it's quite a small bit of leads uh, that are available on a Sunday. So they decided they should either rent or buy somewhere. Very quickly they found somewhere to buy and they gathered the church to pray and to talk to the church about purchasing a building. Within 24 hours, Chris had received probably about £140,000 worth of pledges to buy this little building. And um, that was all from outside of their church and they took a special offering in uh, their little groups, probably about 40, 45 adults, uh, and they raised just over £65,000 in order to refurb the building, which looks at the moment a little bit like that. So they need the money. The equivalent of these 40 people raising that much money in mosaic across the gatherings is us raising probably half a million pounds in this special offering. God provided for them in really quite miraculous ways. And during the same time, we've also invested in the Simbay family. Three years ago, they left for Zambia um, to start a school in, a, again, a deprived city with hardly any uh, provision for uh, secondary education. They've built that school. They've had their first nearly year uh, in, the, uh, in the school year. And just in a couple of months' time, we send out Larry and Leah Seaman from the North Gathering to help them in their work, but also to plant the church. We've also invested in Dave, um, Dave Horsfall, who leads the North Gathering. We've given to the Hobbs, who are helping to plant a church in China, and many, many more things. Uh, it would take up too much time to let you know all the different great stuff we've invested in. The reason I tell you is this. I want you to see that when we give, when we give like really practically our money to something like this, it it becomes sort of instruments in the hands of God. It's something that there's a transaction happens as we give the money, then it's an investment in something that God can do to produce fruit for the kingdom. I also believe it's an eternal investment, but just looking over the last four or five years, what God has done, as we as a church have given generously 
blows my mind. So this year, these next eight weeks, is about learning some ancient lessons in battling and building from the book of Nehemiah. And in this special offering, we are investing in building by investing in the training and discipleship across the sites. But we're also battling by pressing forward with sort of all the things Rich talked about, young people, what we're doing here and what we're doing in South Leeds. So we, we would love you to consider giving today. There's no pressure. You guys know that. You don't have to give. But we would love to give you the opportunity to give if you want it. And basically what we're going to do now is I'd like to pray for us, but then we're going to worship for a little bit. And as we sing, you can just make your way to the back and drop your envelopes in, or you can do it on the way out if it's difficult to get out of your seat. But listen, more important, more important than you giving tonight, and obviously, you know, I think that's an important thing. More important than that is that we... As High Park Heavenly, we pick up our sword and our spade. Yes, the church's walls are looking broken down, but our dream here really is to build a training base for mission. Like, we really do want to do that. We want to equip Christians to be all that God has called them to be so that they either are effective here in Leeds or wherever God sends them around the world. We really do believe in deep discipleship here. We don't think we should fake it in the Christian life. We believe that the gospel transforms us from the inside out. We believe that there's a hope that's greater than just we become nice people when we become Christians, but we get free from stuff, and God can use us powerfully. And we really do specialize in discipleship here. We believe in loving community. We believe that we shouldn't just do this on our own, but this should be a family on the charge together. And we do believe in serving the poor and the underprivileged. They are so important to the heart of God, and we must be the sort of church that values them. And our hope is that every single one of you, whatever your sphere of influence, whether it's at uni, in the workplace, at home, in your neighborhood, wherever that might be, you are empowered and equipped to do that. And ultimately, our hope is that we plant many, many churches. We plant many, many gatherings across Leeds and across the nations of the world and wherever God leads us. And we will do that as each one of us holds our sword with everything we've got and we build the church using the spade God's given us. So do you want to stand to your feet? Let me pray for us and then we are going to worship together. Do you want to close your eyes for a moment with me? Now really, um, I want you to think that you have a sword and spade in your hand and one will be in a stronger arm. And I wonder which is your stronger arm. You might feel like both your arms are weak. But I want you to think about your weaker arm and in these moments I want you to offer that area of your life to God. And ask him, God, would you empower me to be someone that does both these things well? And would you help me play my part in this church family? So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this family. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us together. And you've called us together for a purpose. And we do pray, Lord, teach us from this book of Nehemiah. Make it so relevant to us. But Lord, also speak to us about what you're calling us to do as a church family. Lord, I pray that you would put a strong 
and sharp sword in our hand, that we would see the kingdom advancing powerfully. And I pray, God, you'd put that spade in our hand that we would build. We'd build the church. We'd build a safe place to bring people into that love you and know you. So visit us, Holy Spirit. Change our hearts. I pray for anyone's heart that is cold to this message. God, just come, have mercy on us. Like, fill us with compassion again for those that don't know Jesus. Save us, Lord, from thinking we, we're okay, so I'm not going to bother with anyone else. But Lord, put a Nehemiah-like passion in our hearts for the lost, for the broken, for the needy. Heavenly Father, we ask for that miracle in our lives. Come and do it, Lord. Come and change this nation. Come and change this city. In your very powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you.